Uh, we started off on that. We did a little bit of some uh, introductory material, some definitions of terms and prefixes and suffixes, all the usual stuff. Um, and then we went into the physical methods of control. Uh, and we went through heat, uh, which is the most common method. Uh, we went through moist heat, dry heat. Um, and then we went to um, cold. Okay, and talked about refrigeration. And now we've gotten to uh, desiccation and lyophilization. Desiccation is not necessarily uh, a, a temperature issue. Uh, it is simply a matter of drying it out to the point where there's essentially no water available for microbes to, to grow with. Uh, and it's been a common way of, of preserving foods for um, as long as humans probably have been preserving it, particularly uh, uh, meats. Uh, it was one of the few ways to preserve meats. Uh, grains often did not need that kind of preservation. Um, and then lyophilization is uh, freeze-dry, and, and if you've ever gone camping and used camping what you got is freeze-dried food, add water, heat, you have a wonderful meal. Well, sometimes. Some of them are actually pretty good. Some of them do not bear much resemblance to what the picture on the back is. Just kind of how they're going. Uh, MREs are pretty much the same. Some of them aren't too bad. Some of them are pretty awful. Okay, and this is, uh, so here there is this another one. Uh, you know, we try fruit also, dried apricots, dried uh, apples. You know, a lot of people try foods. Uh, I've got some dried pineapple at home. Um, you know, so it's just another way of preserving. Okay, the other thing you can do is you can filter. It's a physical method for filtering. Um, and this is a lot like what we talked about with how we would... Uh, count organisms using filtering them and then then we would culture the filter uh, here all we're simply all we're doing is simply filtering them out so you're using a filter that is uh, as you can see here the, the openings in it are generally too uh, small to allow the microbes through uh, and uh, this is a, a a common thing used with uh, foods uh, uh, many uh, some things are pasteurized, other things are filtered. Uh, and I think if you, uh, you look, uh, like uh, sometimes uh, if you look at apple cider, you'll see you have filtered and unfiltered. If it's from a big processor, it might be uh, pasteurized, but if it's from a smaller one, uh, you will see both filtered and unfiltered. Uh, it is pretty much how uh, craft beers are, are uh, rendered essentially free uh, of uh, microbes. There you're dealing mostly with yeast, uh, which is kind of the you know the the crud in the bottom of the of the bottle if you don't filter. Um, they don't generally pasteurize. The large breweries do pasteurize beer, but the small ones don't bother don't do that. They use filtration systems, uh, and that was a big advertising thing. It's been about five, six, seven years ago when people when beer, uh, beers were advertising that they were cold filtered. Okay, our beer has never been pasteurized. It is cold filtered. It has stayed cold. I think it was Coors that was really pushing that. Uh, but uh, but that's not uncommon. Okay. Uh, of course, you can get beers that uh, craft beers that are not filtered at all. You're just drinking whatever was left. Uh, usually, you'll get some sediment in the bottom. Some wines are like that. You'll get sediment in the bottom of the bottle. Okay, so using a membrane filter, um, 
These are different pore sizes that you can purchase. Um, this is probably the, the smallest one that's generally used for this purpose. Uh, it will let some, uh, a few uh, things through, but usually not enough to be of any concern. Uh, this is when we do our phage lab here, this is the size filter we use. It lets the, blocks all the bacteria, but the particular viruses that we're using uh, can go through the holes. And then we essentially have isolated them from all the other crud that was in the, in, in the fluid. Uh, so that's, this, this gives you an idea of the different sizes. Uh, the pore size of five uh, micrometers basically filters out large chunks of that stuff, small animals. Okay, uh, this is a, they really are using what are called HEPA filters. This is just an illustration that we talked about a biological safety cabinet. Uh, this is an illustration of one. Uh, and so uh, air comes in and it goes through the filters uh, and then it, through this filter, then it goes around and out this through another filter. So basically it's filtered as it comes in and then it's filtered again as it goes out. And usually these have a separate exhaust to the outside uh, you know, from the rest of the air, air handling system in the building. Uh, and then of course they've got a glass screen in front of it. Uh, normally you keep it down and you just put your hands in there. Okay, another physical method is osmotic pressure. Osmotic pressure, you know, we all know about hypo solutions that are hypertonic and those that are hypertonic and, and what they do. And basically, uh, another physical method of control is high concentrations of salt or sugar. Uh, humans have been salting foods for as long as we are. There are any records. Uh, back at that time, there was no refrigeration unless you lived way up north somewhere uh, of any kind. And the people who controlled the salt, where it was mined usually, or however it was gotten, got very rich because everybody needed the salt and they could impose taxes and, uh, on, on the travel of it. Uh, caravans traveling through your territory carrying salt and spices to somewhere else, they paid a, a fee to go through your territory. Uh, this was a, a very typical way. You can also use sugar to do the same thing. Uh, and, you know, you, uh, so you can, do, you can brine things, you can actually put salt on them directly, uh, like salt cod, salt fish is commonly that just dump lots of salt on it and it dehydrates it and that, uh, it keeps. Uh, if you're doing uh, uh, some other types of salting, you don't use quite so much salt, like you use a brine instead, like dill pickles. You, know, you open a jar of dill pickles, people are reaching in there with their fingers and grabbing pickles and nothing ever happens. I mean, well, I guess it would if you went long enough, but, uh, and that's because the brine simply does not allow things to grow. It's, it's too much salt. It removes water from the cells by osmosis and, and essentially kills them. Okay? And like I say, you can do the same thing with sugar, which is uh, what we do with jellies and jams. It's just the opposite. It's the same thing, only using sugar instead of salt. Those are not new things at all, but they're another physical method of uh, controlling microbial growth. Yes. The ocean is not salty enough at all. Um, that was the question. Um, the uh, salinity of the ocean is not sufficient to, to in fact, we are, seawater contains many microbes. 
So when next time you go swimming in the ocean, you just float down a little bit of salt water, and there are tons of critters floating in there. Fortunately, they're not pathogens for the most part, so it's not, you know, we don't find any pathogens in there. Okay. Um, kind of the last method is radiation. Radiation is another effective method of controlling growth. Uh, we have uh, several types of, of uh, radiation. The first one is ionizing radiation. This would be an electron beam, gamma rays, some really high energy x-rays. Uh, basically what they do is as they hit elements that they're going through, they cause electrons to be removed, creating ions. The ions then disrupt the bonding between things uh, and create hydroxyl radicals, which damage other molecules and essentially uh, prevent the, the biological molecules from functioning. In particular, uh, DNA is affected by, by this. Uh, so they're, they're quite effective. The downside of them is uh, electron beams, at least, do not penetrate very far. So if you've got something that's thick, it's not going to work. It's not going to go all the way through. Now, gamma rays will go all the way through anything, just about. And they, they're zipping through us all the time. Uh, but they generally take a long time and, and x-rays. So they're not really practical for microbial control. Uh, and we, you, uh, there are foods that are uh, radiated or irradiated is the term that's used. Uh, here's an example of, you know, of strawberries were irradiated and one another group was not. They, the shelf life they keep eating is much better. Unfortunately in the United States uh, people have not, even though it's an approved method of, of uh, control, uh, people do not react well to uh, irradiated foods. Uh, they, they think, well, this, you know, this, it's going to glow in the dark and it's going to you know, give cancer and all that. And in reality, it doesn't do anything because the radiation passes all the way through and it's done. Okay, there is no they're not radioactive or anything like that. Uh, uh, irradiating meat has been done. It uh, really helps preserve meat. Uh, in Europe, it's a little more common. Here, which is really surprising given their uh, reaction to GMOs. Uh, but uh, one person's good thing is another person's worst nightmare, I guess. Uh, and so, but uh, irradiation works. Uh, you can use non ionizing radiation. Uh, this uh, causes new covalent bonds, so it affects the structure of proteins and nucleic acids. Uh, the most common method of that is ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light causes uh, uh, thymines, which happen to be next to each other in the DNA chain, to bind to each other instead of to their mate across on the other side. Uh, disrupts the DNA, uh, and so that is an effective method of limiting uh, microbes. And it's commonly used today. Uh, uh, we'll use it in one of our labs that's coming up. We'll use it a little bit. In many places, um, UV light is used uh, to uh, purify water because it will, you know, it will do that. You can, in some hospitals, they actually run have UV lights in the air handlers to again to reduce microbes because microbes are everywhere. So you know you got to get them all the time, and so UV uh, is an effective method of doing that. Uh, and so here's a chart lists all the things we just talked about. So if you need a quick review, you know you can look at this. And you what they are, uh, what what they do. Okay, so over here is what they are. Here's what they do, and some examples uh, on the other side. So, uh, 
um, all physical methods of controlling microbial growth. Right. Well, we also have chemical methods. And when we get into the chemical methods, we're going to look at them as classes of chemicals, really. And I'll give you examples. Uh, what you want to, to know about these is what is the general group called? What does it do to the microbes that, that, that harms them? Okay? In other words, how does it work? Uh, and so it may affect cell walls, it may affect the, the plasma membrane, it may affect proteins, it may affect DNA. Um, and its effectiveness will vary with environmental conditions. This is always an issue. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it says here, more effective against developed viruses and vegetative cells than it is against spores, usually. Okay, so the first one is the old original antiseptic which is phenolic acid, what was first used by Lister uh, when he got the idea that you know, if we uh, treated the surgical sites with something that would prevent microbial growth, he would reduce infections and he used phenolic acid at first. Um, it was effective. Uh, it also did cause some damage to the healthy tissue, so it's no longer used. But what they do is they uh, denature proteins. Uh, phenols uh, will do that and they disrupt the cell membranes. And so they uh, have some real uh, good uses in terms of uh, non-living sources because A, they're active for a fairly long time. Uh, things like alcohol, for instance, as soon as it evaporates, it's no longer effective. Phenolics tend to last longer. And they work in the presence of organic matter. This is particularly important in allied health because you're often dealing with cleaning up organic matter, okay? urine, feces, vomit, and whatever, blood, uh, and phenolics will work in the presence. Some of the other chemicals uh, will not be effective in those conditions. So that's one of those things you, you have to know what, what you're doing, uh, what you're using them for. Uh, it'll smell really good, uh, but, you know, that's kind of comes along with them. They are commonly used in labs and, uh, and in healthcare. Uh, so here are some examples. Uh, a couple of these I know you've heard. Uh, this is what phenol looks like. You don't need to memorize the, the molecules, but you can see pretty quickly all of these are in some way modifications of this basic structure. Uh, you've all you've probably heard of uh, triclosan, uh, and certainly everybody's heard of hexafluorophane. Uh, it's not used as much as it used to be. It used to be, actually it used to be something you could buy over the counter. If you go to the drugstore, you could buy stuff with hexafluorophane in it. Uh, that's no longer the case. Uh, it, it has some side effects that they don't, uh, but it's an effective phenolic. Uh, 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 yeah. What kind of side effects? Well, it, it's uh, all the chlorines on there uh, make it easily absorbed through the skin. Not usually a good thing. So th this is so when they refer to phenolics, these are the things. These are the more common ones here. Uh, these are probably, if you were to work somewhere around them, you'd find that some of these have trade names that would be that might be more familiar. Okay, so those are the phenols. Denature proteins disrupt cell membranes, effective in the presence of organic matter. They their effects linger. Don't smell very good, but they're effective. Okay. Uh, another class of of uh, chemicals are the alcohols. 
We all use alcohols as a disinfectant or an antiseptic. You know, the next time you uh, they take draw blood, and you know they're going to swab you with an alcohol pad uh, and and reduce the number of microbes on the skin. Yeah. Yes, they're pretty high. Okay. Alcohols are, yeah, as it says, intermediate level. Okay, their function basically, uh, they disrupt cell membranes and they denature proteins. Uh, so they're more effective than just plain soap. Soap uh, is more of a, a surfactant to, to remove things. The alcohol will actually uh, uh, kill them. And so uh, that's why you know the skin is swabbed. It's not a high-level uh, antiseptic, uh, but it's it's uh, effective, uh, you know, for, for things like shots and, and kind of routine sorts of things, um, and uh, is very commonly used. It's easily uh, it's easily purchased. It's easily available. Okay. Uh, generally, what you're going to find is they're using uh, a methyl alcohol, non-drinkable alcohol, uh, most of the time. Uh, most of the time, when you buy alcohol at the store or in a drugstore, it's it's not not ethanol, it's not pure ethanol. Uh, some labs use uh, a an eighty percent solution of ethanol as uh, to disinfect the lab tables and things like that. Uh, it's pretty effective for doing that. Actually, uh, those are what the, the more common way is to uh, treat the surface with a surfactant first to loosen up any adhesion. And then you treat it right after that with the alcohol. Uh, so it works. It's pretty effective. Okay, another group are the halogens. Halogens are things like iodine, fluorine. Um, those are really the most common. Bromine is occasionally used. Uh, they uh, denature enzymes, denature proteins. Uh, they're used quite a bit. Uh, iodine tablets are commonly, you can buy those to drop in water. If you have to get water out of a stream, you drop an iodine tablet. It does give it a bit of an off flavor, but it at least kills things that are in there. Uh, chlorine uh, treatments, bleach. The reason bleach works is it contains chlorine, uh, and, uh, and it's very effective. Uh, bromine is less commonly, I, I don't really ever, I don't really see that used much. Um, and so uh, they, these are pretty commonly used uh, types of things. Uh, and so here's where uh, this looks like an iodine treatment prior to surgery. Iodine has that nice brown color in, in this kind of situation. Uh, and and it, it works fairly well. Uh, let's go back up here. Okay. So, uh, and, and the nice thing about iodine tablets is that you, after you treat it, you can drink the water. Okay. And in fact, if you're careful, um, I remember during, uh, or right after Hurricane Isabel, when our water was not safe to drink, uh, and if you didn't have electricity boiling, it was going to be a bit of a tough thing to do. Uh, they said that you could put a couple of drops of bleach into a, a, a jug of water, and then you needed to let it set for a while. And what will happen during that time is the chlorine will evaporate out, and then it's safe to drink. So, so bleach can be used like that. You just Obviously, you don't want to drink uh, while it's still active. Bleach is pretty nasty. Okay. Uh, bleach has chlorine in it, which is why they tell you not to use it with uh, alkaline cleansers at the same time. You, most of those will have on the bottle or the package. Do not use 
because what happens is the basic compound reacts with bleach and releases chlorine gas, which is uh, which is deadly. Inhale and upward. So, so while chlorine bleach is really very effective, you do need to be a little careful about handling it. Okay, um, oxidizing agents. Okay, so an oxidizing agent is going to uh, oxidation means that I have stolen an electron from something. So what it's going to do is remove electrons. Uh, and that will, when you take electrons away from proteins, you change their three-dimensional shape, and that inactivates them. And so that's its method of, of functioning. Uh, the uh, probably uh, the most common one that you would be aware of is hydrogen peroxide. Uh, this is pretty commonly used on, on surfaces and disinfect as a disinfectant. Uh, it's not really that useful for treating open wounds, although it is not unusual for people to do that. Uh, and the reason it doesn't work very well is that, uh, and if you've ever used it, you'll notice that it just bubbles like crazy. And what's happening is the cells that have been damaged have released an enzyme called catalase, which is an enzyme all of our cells have, and what catalase's whole function is, is to get rid of hydrogen peroxide. And so it breaks it down into water and oxygen. And so that's what you're seeing is that reaction going on. Um, and so when it, as it does that, obviously then the hydrogen peroxide is not going to be very effective because it's being broken down very, very rapidly by the enzymes. Uh, catalase is a very uh, rapid acting enzyme. Uh, but it's uh, much more useful on, on other surfaces where that's not going to happen to it. Uh, ozone fits into this. Uh, ozone is often used in, uh, and I think they do here, uh, at Newport News Waterworks, they treat water. Uh, ozone is one of the, the things that, along with, they use chlorine, they use uh, uh, ammonia or amines, and uh, many places also use uh, uh, ozone as a treatment. Ozone is uh, to oxidize things. Peracetic acid is not particularly uh, common. You wouldn't find that out you know, over the counter type of thing, but it uh, does. Uh, kill spores, fungal spores and, and protein spores, which makes it very, very handy uh, to use. Okay, surfactants. Surfactant means surface active. What that means is basically it reduces the surface tension. And that means you, then you can wipe the microbes off. You don't necessarily always kill them directly, but you can easily, uh, that most uh, microbes will adhere to whatever surface they're on, and, and the surfactant breaks that adhesion and allows you to get rid of it. Uh, that's mostly what hand washing does, is it's a surfactant, uh, unless you're using one that has something in it that's antimicrobial, uh, which is of generally limited use, but probably, probably not a great thing. But, uh, but mostly what you're doing is uh, uh, breaking the connection between the organism surface and then when you rinse it just goes down the drain. So, uh, uh, detergents, that's what detergents do. Uh, all, all detergents. So basically soaps. These are basically a, a, a type of soap. Uh, and uh, the most common one used, are what they call it quats, that means quaternary ammonium salts. Uh, and that's uh, uh, one of the most common uh, things used. can also use heavy metals 
Now, generally, we think of heavy metals as bad, okay? Um, they are bad for us because they denature proteins. That creates a problem. However, they can be used as bacteriostatic and fungostatic agents. 1% uh, silver nitrate is, was the classical treatment for uh, children who might have been exposed to gonorrhea when they were being born. They would just put an ointment right in their eyes to, to take care of that. Uh, that's still done today. Uh, it has not changed. Uh, the, uh, the Marisol is, uh, this is the compound in, vac in vaccines that has a small amount of mercury in it. Mercury's a heavy metal. Uh, and uh, some people really object to. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any major, I mean, it's such a small amount. Uh, compared to eating a, uh, having a, a dinner with a swordfish steak, uh, you can have a lot of vaccinations before you get anywhere near that amount of mercury. So it, it's really a very small amount. Uh, and then copper is commonly used to control algal growth. Now, again, that's not a pathogen, but uh, heavy metals uh, will control, uh, affect uh, the growth of microbes. Most algae are, in fact, microbes. We just aren't that interested in them because they're not pathogenic. Yes? Rhinovirus, yes, it does. And that's uh, what's behind uh, the various zinc sprays that you use. Uh, if you think you're getting, if you're getting a cold, you spray them up in your nose and it inhibits, uh, zinc does seem to help inhibit the growth. You don't take them, uh, it's not something to swallow, it's a, something to spray. Rhinoviruses are only really gonna be in the nasal area anyway. Uh, and, and they do help, uh, they won't keep you from getting a cold, what they will do is uh, shorten that's at least the plan to do that. Okay, this auger plate that you see here, this is a small piece of gold foil. Gold is a heavy metal also. Uh, and uh, you can see that there is nothing growing close to it. Well, you know, there's a definite area of, of, with no growth. So uh, these are, are effective. There have also been some uh, experiments lately with embedding tiny bits of silver in uh, things that people use in public areas, and particularly like pens. You know, like at the bank where they got the pen on the chain, and who knows who's touched it last, uh, that embedding small amounts of silver into that, into the uh, structure of the pen, seems to inhibit microbial growth on okay. uh, I don't know a lot of other uses like that, but uh, at this point, but, uh, so heavy metals do uh, are somewhat effective. Uh, mercury uh, it was long used as an antiseptic, too. I mean, we talk about it here as a preservative. And, uh, when I was growing up, if you got a scrape or a cut, you put mercurochrome on it. That worked because there was mercury in it. And it was also a nice pink color, kind of an orangish color, so you knew exactly where you put it. Came in little bottles with a little glass rod in them. You just take it out and rub it on. And see exactly where it went. And then after that, they came out with methylate which also had mercury in it, but it's, I think, at a lower level. Uh, those were commonly used uh, for, for minor wounds, for kids' wounds, you know, the, the typical things that kids do. Uh, okay, aldehydes. Uh, these basically have, at the end of them, a carbon with a double-bonded oxygen and then a hydrogen. And, and these are capable of denaturing proteins and inactivating nucleic acids. 
Uh, the, there are two of them that are most commonly used. Glutaraldehyde is one. Glutaraldehyde is a very good uh, disinfectant and can actually sterilize small, some small areas if you uh, get that. It's a little dangerous to work with, but it uh, will work. The other one is formalin or formaldehyde. Uh, we used to use that to preserve, we still use it to preserve specimens. Although today, uh, you'll find that most companies, uh, you can still buy formaldehyde uh, preserved specimens, but we, we don't anymore. We, we buy them. They've come out with uh, well, proprietary solutions that do not contain formaldehyde so that students are not exposed to it. Formaldehyde is a carcinogen, so you really don't want exposure to formaldehyde. You know, back when I went to school, and there we did. Nobody, nobody paid any attention to it back then. Uh, but today, we do. So, so they work. Uh, formalin is used in embalming. It also works for disinfection of, of large areas and instruments. Okay, and then the last thing we have here is a gas that you could use. Now, a gas has some advantages because it'll get into the little conducts and crannies and crevices. Uh, the most common one is ethylene oxide. The problem with it is, is it kills everything, people, everything. Okay, so it has to be very carefully handled. And usually, whatever you're sterilizing is put in a very in a closed container. The gas is released into that, and then that's evacuated out. And then you take the instruments out, and it's extremely effective. Okay, you can sterilize actually sterilize things. Uh, the problem, of course, is you know you have you couldn't really guess you could. It's difficult to sterilize a whole room or something like that. But it's relatively easy to sterilize small amounts of something. Uh, it's explosive, so storage is a bit of an issue with it. Uh, it's poisonous, it's carcinogenic, uh, but it kills. Well, of course, is that, is that effective in killing things? Uh, of course, it's dangerous. Uh, and it's usually used only in hospitals. Very Some dental offices, I guess, do use it, but not commonly. Um, okay, and then we have enzymes. Uh, that are effective, antimicrobial enzymes. This is not, this is different from uh, antibiotics. These are enzymes that, uh, that usually we produce. Uh, we produce one called lysozyme. It's in uh, with the mucus, it's on your skin, it's in the uh, mucus uh, membranes. And basically it slowly breaks down septin-lycan cell walls. So it's an effective antimicrobial. It's not living, this is simply an enzyme that we use. Uh, there is now uh, a new thing out called a, a pre-enzyme, which uh, was one of the few ways that you can actually get rid of prions. Remember, prions are proteins. So an enzyme that breaks them down is a, a relatively effective way of doing that. Okay, uh, now we're gonna get into uh, antimicrobials. Uh, so let's just go back through here uh, what the different things were. Uh, phenol or phenolics, adhesion proteins disrupt cell membranes, work in the presence of organic matter, which is very useful, uh, characteristic in nursing homes and in hospitals. Uh, it, it works, stays active for a while. Uh, alcohols, we've all had experience with alcohol being used as a disinfectant, it's a chemical means. Uh, in essence, when we did that lab with the uh, disinfectants and the different antiseptics, those were all chemical controlled. 
most of your mouthwashes used to use alcohol as their control. Now they are now they've come out with the number that you have to, are supposed to be alcohol free. The alcohol would kind of stink. So uh, they have, I'm not sure what they have in them, but uh, enzyme I'm uh, Okay, so we looked at alcohols. Uh, the halogens, chlorine. Chlorine is probably most common, and then iodine. Uh, oxidizing agents, peroxides, ozone, parasitic acid. Surfactants, break the connection to the surface and help it be more easy. Heavy metals, mostly mercury, uh, silver. Gold is not generally used in this for this sort of thing because of its cost. Uh, and then copper. And actually, copper is pretty expensive stuff too anymore. Uh, it is one of the uh, more common types of theft today. Is people breaking into homes that are not occupied and removing all the copper wiring and selling. Okay, aldehydes, glutaraldehyde and formalin or formaldehyde, you probably remember formaldehyde. Uh, ethylene oxide, which is a gas, and then enzymes, lysozyme in particular. Okay, something we do every day, all day long. Alright, so antibiotics. Uh, antibiotics can be naturally produced or they may be synthetic. Uh, there are some synthetic antibiotics. Uh, it is thought that that's the future of antibiotics. If we're going to find new antibiotics that are effective against organisms that are multi-resistant, that is probably going to be something that we synthesize, something that they have never seen before. And so they have a, at least initially no resistance to it. Doesn't mean they won't get resistance later, but they don't. So typically uh, used for the treatment of diseases, infections uh, of various kinds. Uh, Occasionally used outside the body, but primarily there for internal use. Um, now, when you want to evaluate these, their uh, effectiveness, they use something called the phenol coefficient. Okay, phenol is the classic, but uh, disinfectant. If something uh, is equal to phenol at a, at a particular concentration, it has a coefficient of one. And of course, obviously, you're looking for things that have a higher coefficient, have a higher than one. Uh, uh, this was initially how they were evaluated, and of course today there are some newer methods for evaluating them. Uh, you can do a, a dilution test. Uh, I don't have a picture of it. Um, you take some uh, metal cylinders, you dip them in a uh, bacterial culture, a broth culture, and then you immerse it in a disinfectant. And you'll have different bottles of disinfectant with different concentrations, serial dilutions. And then you uh, remove the cylinders after some period of time, you rinse them off, and then you put them in a tube with growth medium, and you see how much growth do I get. In other words, how effective was it in killing at that particular concentration? And so uh, you're looking not only to see how effective it is at the high dilutions, you're also looking to see how effective it is at, at a dilution that can be used with as well. That's currently how things are being, are generally. Uh, there is, uh, this is used in Europe, uh, the Kelsey Sykes test. Uh, basically, they take the chemical, instead of 
coating a cylinder, dipping a cylinder in bacteria, what they do is they make a suspension of your, uh, of your chemical, whatever you want to test, and they simply add bacteria to it, different concentrations, and then you remove samples at, at particular times and you analyze them to see how many of the bacteria are still, are still there and are they reproducing. So by knowing how many are there, you can tell if they've been reproducing because you would know when you did it, you'd know exactly how many you put in, and then you can see if it's functioning as a as a uh, uh, control on their growth. Many of the antibiotics that we use do not kill bacteria. Uh, many of them simply stop them from growing and allows your immune system to take Okay. Now, you can also take swabs from objects before and after application of, it, of an antiseptic disinfected, put the swabs in you know, uh, inoculate media and monitor that growth. That's another way. Uh, and that's one way of determining what's the best strength and procedure for applying these, you know, what works best. Do something, something like that. Okay. Uh, all right. So a little bit of the history. Uh, drugs. Drugs are basically anything that affects your physiology. That's, that's what a drug is. Uh, and and they're, they may be synthetic, they may be natural, they may be illegal, they may be illegal. If they affect your physiology, they're considered. Now, chemotherapeutic drugs are drugs that, in fact, work against various diseases, usually by stopping bacterial microbial growth or, or sometimes actually killing them, which they, they eventually do. Uh, and then antimicrobial agents are specific drugs that are used to treat infections. Okay, so here's uh, an example. There. Uh, this is Staph aureus. Obviously, it's a sensitive Staph aureus culture. Uh, this is penicillium. This is the actual mold. This is not penicillin, the antibiotic. This is the actual mold, mold growing there. And it's pretty clear that there's a zone around it where the uh, Staph aureus is not happy and does not grow there. Okay, it uh, illustrates that there's, in fact, a, an antimicrobial effect from that. This, of course, was our first antibiotic. Uh, first one we knew about. Many of our initial. Okay, I get what that's all about. We'll see what happens here for a minute. Okay, well, it'll take everything a few minutes to come back on. Um, no idea what the cost is. But then you never know. It's one of the things that's really irritating when things happen like that happening. There's no way of knowing what, you know, what caused that, what's going on. It's really hard to find out. Okay, our handlers are back. Computer's back up.
amazing how quiet it gets when you're in one of those shut rooms. You don't even notice the noise most of the time. It's just kind of background noise. You either ignore it. You learn to ignore it. I'll probably just get this going. I guess I was talking about the initial antibiotics, uh, penicillin. Uh, there are other antibiotics that came from uh, some from bacteria. There's a group of bacteria that produces antibiotics. And basically, the function of antibiotics in the natural world is to inhibit the growth of, of competitors. Uh, now, if you're a fungus and you're living in an area and you've got to share all your resources with bacteria and produce penicillin that inhibits the growth of many of the bacteria, you, you get a larger share of the nutrients. Uh, it, it's simply chemical warfare on, on, a, you know, on that level. Uh, it goes on all the time. Uh, we've just taken advantage of that uh, once we understood what was Now, um, how do they work? Well, we're going to look at that. There's, there's uh, several different ways that different uh, antimicrobials work. The primary thing is selective, something that's called selective toxicity. In other words, your antimicrobial, whatever it might be, has to harm the things you want to get rid of, but not harm the host. And it's selectively toxic. It harms one group, does not harm the other. And that's what we're looking for. Is this selective toxicity? Uh, antibacterials are the primary ones. There are some antifungals as well. There are some also some anti-protein uh, 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 drugs. Most of them are antibacterial. Uh, eukaryotics are much harder to deal with because the cells are more like our cells. Okay, and the closer their cells are to ours, the harder it is to have that selective toxicity. Uh, <coughs> Fungals are particularly difficult to deal with. Uh, usually, if you're taking an antifungal, you're going to be taking it for months. Uh, it's going to take quite a while. Okay. Uh, antivirals, very few. There are some out there. Um, Tamivir, or, or, uh, and there's another one. I just name I'm not remembering. 
Um, the idea behind those is that they inhibit the virus's ability to get into your cells. They are only effective if you take them within 48 hours of exposure. Because after 48 hours, they've already infected your cells and they're busily spreading around other cells. And, and so while it may shorten the, the duration, it's not going to stop you from getting ill. But it, it may make it less virulent uh, because of that. Uh, so antivirals at this point are pretty limited. That may change right now the way it is. So here are the six, and we'll go through these uh, uh, kind of one at a time. The six uh, methods by which antimicrobials function. Okay. So one is to inhibit cell wall synthesis. Okay. Almost all bacteria, there are some exceptions, uh, there's, there are a, a few that do not have cell walls. Well, most of them do, and if you, most of them have peptidoglycan in those cell walls. And if you can inhibit that, uh, then you, the, the formation of peptidoglycan, then they can't grow. Because the only way they're going to be able to grow is to build more, you know, more cell wall material. Uh, that's what penicillin does. There are several others here that have similar uh, effects. This one actually is an antifungal here. Uh, uh, but basically, they inhibit cell wall formation. They are more effective on gram positives than they are on gram negatives. Problem with gram negatives is getting through that outer membrane down to the cell wall. And so that's why it's often important to know whether the infection is a positive, a gram positive or gram negative, because it will affect the selection of, of antibodies. Okay, another thing that you can do is you can inhibit protein synthesis. All living things have to be making proteins all the time to, stay, to, to grow and ultimately to stay alive. So if you can inhibit their ability to produce proteins, then you're going to initially stop them from growing and then you're going to, they're, they're going to stop, they're going to die because they can't make proteins. Basically the target here is the ribosome, normally. Okay. Uh, tetracycline, chloramphenicol, these are pretty common. There are others, we'll talk about a few others as we go through. Uh, but basically, they jam up the whole uh, ribosome messenger RNA complex so that it does not function properly. And, and that's an effective method. This works uh, because of the difference in size of, of uh, ribosomes. Okay. Uh, you can also uh, disrupt the plasma membrane. That's another approach. Uh, polymyxins do this. And then there's an antifungal there. Biggest problem with this is that you do get into, uh, well, the membranes of the microbes may have different proteins in them than ours do. The basic structure of plasma membranes is the same in all organisms. Okay? It's that double layer of the uh, phospholipids. I mean, that's the standard you know, makeup. And so uh, this is a little more difficult to be selective with. Uh, you can inhibit metabolic pathways, and some of these organisms have unique metabolic pathways that we don't have, or that mammals don't have, and if you can inhibit those, then you are going to uh, obviously cause the growth to slow down, gives your immune system more opportunity, and eventually, ultimately, your immune system is going to have to take care of this. Uh, the sulfonamides, trimethoprim, one of the ones we used in lab, that's, that's what it does. It affects metabolic pathways. Okay, there are a few here that inhibit DNA or RNA synthesis. 
Um, they are effective, usually uh, not used for long term because they might affect your DNA also if you were to continue taking them. Uh, the most common ones are the quinolones. Uh, quinolones are used, uh, they're the ones that's used in chicken feed and everything a lot. Uh, this is a problem. Uh, if you have a uh, urinary tract infection, you're going to get a quinolone usually because that's effective against the particular bacteria that are usually uh, causing that. Um, and then rifampin. Rifampin is a pretty powerful antibody. Uh, it's used with tuberculosis and also with people with Hansen's disease. Uh, uh, and then we have, you can block them from attaching to the host. This is primarily an antiviral uh, a, a, a approach, um, and because that's what the antivirals do. So Tamiflu uh, and, and the other antivirals that are here are they primarily function by attempting to block the ability of the virus to attach to your cells. They can't attach to cells, and they can't do anything. And your immune system, once it recognizes them, will get them. Problem is, if it's a brand new strain of the virus or a new one of the bacteria, it could be a week before your immune system really gets fully going. And in that amount of time, you're going to get sick. Okay. Uh, the reason for vaccines is that you uh, react to them when they can't cause a disease, and you make memory cells. We'll talk about this when we get into the immune system. And the memory cells will react within 48 hours. So you rarely get sick from the exact same thing a second time. You may get a little picky, but you know, you're not going to get sick like you, you would the first time. Okay, so those are the six beta, basic approaches to antimicrobials and how they work. Okay, so uh, inhibition of cell wall synthesis, we're going to take a look at this. Uh, this is penicillin, this is methicillin. You'll see all of these have this little square structure in it. This is called the beta-lactam ring. It is the common between cephalosporins, methicillin, penicillin. And what it does is it prevents these cross-linkings from forming between the different strands of the peptidoglycan. Uh, and then eventually the, uh, the cell wall weakens, the cell bursts, and it dies. Okay? Now, uh, resistance to this, uh, these types of uh, things uh, are, uh, well, there's also vancomycin, bacitracin, uh, isonazid, these are all, these are for mycolic acid. These are for the particular bacteria that make mycolic acids in their cell walls. That would be uh, primarily uh, Hansen's disease uh, and uh, tuberculosis. Regular antibiotics are frequently not nearly as effective on those, and these are particularly effective against those particular organisms. All right, so, and then there are some antifungals as well that work. Uh, what happens in these, uh, one of the common enzymes which bacteria that are resistant to these is they make something called beta-lactamase. Beta-lactamase is an enzyme that breaks this ring that you see in green. And then the antibiotic is not going to be very effective. Okay. 
that's what your bacteria have in all of you. If they have, that's what they have. Okay, now what I'll be expecting you to do, I'll be just uh, before we go any farther, is to know the six different approaches and to be able to give me one or two examples of each one. You know, tell me what you know what they do. So for this one, if you do uh, penicillin and cephalophene, uh, or if you uh, do methicillin or vancomycin, just use those two as examples. You can say they inhibit the construction of the cephalic body. That's what I. Okay. The other net, uh, the second item was to inhibit protein synthesis. Now, prokaryotic ribosomes are called 70S. Now, S is, is a unit, it's called a Spedmore unit. And what, it, what they did to develop this was they, uh, they used to break up cells and they would put the, all the cell contents into a high-speed centrifuge. And in there, they would have a gradient of different uh, density uh, uh, it was usually cesium that was used, but it would have different densities in different parts of the tube as they spin it. And these parts of the cell would stop moving down that gradient when they came to an area that was the same as they were, same same density that they were. Okay. Basically, uh, 70S is lighter than ADS. Okay. ADS is heavier, uh, it goes farther down the tube, the 70S doesn't. Uh, and so prokaryotic ribosomes are all 70S, eukaryotic or 80S, and therefore you can have a selective targeting. Okay. So this works because the ribosomes are different between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Okay, so uh, some of these uh, can alter the shape and you, you uh, read the, the code wrong. Tetracycline gets into this site right here and stops this from occurring. Chloramphenicol attaches to the to here, prevents you from adding any more amino acids. Uh, macrolides are here, and then you can use uh, some what are uh, basically uh, uh, see here. Uh, uh, they're what's called an antisense nucleic acid. This is something that's relatively new. I don't believe it's uh, clinically used yet. We have discovered that in most organisms, they have these mini RNA sequences that are uh, complementary to the messenger RNA that they've made for a particular gene, and it's a way that the cells control that, whether that messenger RNA is going to translate. If these little M mini MR, uh, RNA bits attached to it, uh, they make them and then they attach that with a block of transcribed. Uh, so one of the things that uh, approaches that's being tried is uh, that we'll make something and uh, put it in and, and it will block. I, I don't think this is a, in any clinical use at this time. Okay, so the basic here is inhibit protein synthesis and in some way you block this whole process of the ribosome. It works only because prokaryotic ribosomes are different than eukaryotic ribosomes. It does not work on fungi because fungal ribosomes are the same as ours. So it's not very effective there. All right, uh, another thing you can do is uh, 
work on the cell membrane. And some of the drugs actually make channels through the membrane. Uh, and now that obviously damages it and it causes the cell to, to die. Uh, this particular one here is effective in fungi. Argosterol is a, a component of cell walls in fungi that we don't have. We don't make that component. And so this particular drug is effective against fungi and it has little effect on us. Although you'll find in general that uh, fungal, antifungals have more side effects than, than antibacterials. Uh, and the reason it is, is that cholesterol, which is what we have in our cell mem membranes, cholesterol is that what makes the cell membranes stay together. Cholesterol is a really important component of, of cells. Uh, it's similar to ergasterol, and so occasionally this drug will, will attach to cholesterol instead, but that usually does not do a lot of that. Uh, bacteria do not work on this. They don't have sterols in their membrane, so there's no, there's no effect for bacteria. Okay, so this is the drug. I, again, you don't need to, to memorize it, but what it does is it inserts itself into the membrane and makes pork. You make holes in the membrane, stuff starts leaking out all over the place in the cells generally. You're not happy. There are also uh, some uh, other drugs that inhibit the production of ergosterol, so that you know, the metabolic pathway to produce it. Uh, polymyxin uh, actually uh, has an effect on gram-negative bacteria, which is really neat because we have a lot of problems with gram-negatives. Problem is, it's also toxic to your kidneys. Not a good thing, okay? And so it, it's used as a, usually it was more of a last resort, and it has to be used carefully. Does work. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, usually if their kidneys are failing, that's what you're going to end up on. Yeah, they, they normally would, would probably do that, and then that, the hope is that if it was effective on the infection, that then the kidneys would, would get better and you'd be able to take them off. Dialysis is not a fun thing, uh, but it keeps a lot of people alive. A lot of problems with that dysfunction. Uh, there are also some uh, parasitic drugs that work too. We have parasites too. You know, we haven't really talked much about parasites yet, and we, we certainly have our share of parasites. Okay, inhibiting metabolic pathways. Uh, if the pathogen and the host metabolic pathways are very different from each other, then you can have some selective toxicity. And so this particular uh, drug here interferes with electron transport in protozoans and fungi because their electron transport chains are, while similar to ours, are not the same. Okay, Heavy metals will inactivate enzymes. That's going to disrupt metabolic pathways. The problem is most heavy metals is that they will also affect our cells. Well, uh, there's also some that prevent the formation of tubulin. Uh, I don't know if you remember from uh, anatomy, we talked we talk, we talk about microtubules inside of cells. Okay, um, they're made out of what are called tubulin dimers. That's what the, they're made out of. If you can inhibit the synthesis of those, then obviously you inhibit the production of the microtubules, and this is going to affect cell function. Right. 
these are usually used with protozoans and parasitic worms. Uh, there are some antivirals here uh, that prevent the virus from uncoating. So that's the second way of then of you can, you can, one thing you can try to do with viruses to prevent them from attaching. If they do attach, once they get inside, they have to, we call it uncoat, to get into that in the next section. And what that means is that they have to take their protein covering off and make their DNA available to be functional in the cell. If you can prevent that process from happening, then they are not going to be infected. Right, they may get in the cell, but they're not going to do anything. Uh, the second part here, protease inhibitors. Uh, HIV in particular, it makes its proteins that are in its coat in a big long chain. And then it has an enzyme that, uh, called protease, that cuts them into the proper length to build the outer neck. Protease inhibitors interfere with that enzyme. And therefore they inhibit uh, the uh, ability of HIV to replicate. Now they're not, not 100%, but they definitely slow it down. And uh, you can inhibit uh, nucleic acid synthesis. There are drugs that will block DNA replication or, or transcription, uh, but they will affect both eukaryotic and prokaryotic cells. So we don't usually use them on infections because they're not going to be there. They may be used with sometimes with cancer, some types of cancer, because they will be more effective on rapidly growing cells than they will be on slow growing cells. And cancer cells are that's one of their hallmarks. They're rapidly growing, rapidly, rapid with cell motion. Uh, you can also use uh, analogs. I think we talked about that with mutations. They interfere. Again, these are used mostly against viruses and occasionally cancer cells. Uh, and you would not normally find them used against normal bacterial infections. Okay, and these are what some of them are. Uh, you don't need to memorize any of these. Um, but all of these will be placed. Uh, any one of these can actually take the place of uh, adenosine in, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the DNA molecule uh, or the RNA. These will replace guanine, these replace cytidine, uh, these thymine. And so these, uh, when you put the wrong thing in there, then you, you disrupt the whole process. Uh, now, sulfonamides. Uh, are drugs that, in fact, do this, um, and uh, the fact that they are used, uh, sulfonamide, sulfamethazole, methoxazole, um, these drugs in inhibit nucleic acid synthesis. And each of them inhibits it in a different location in this whole process right here. So um, the other way is that we can inhibit folic acid synthesis. Folic acid is required for, deep, for nucleic acid production. And so if you can inhibit the ability of the organism to produce folic acid, you can inhibit its ability to uh, replicate its DNA. Quinolones and fluoroquinolones do this as well. Uh, remember when we looked at uh, replication, uh, there was a, a it was called a gyrase. Remember the enzyme that spun the DNA out of the helix so that the strands could come apart? And uh, these uh, inhibit prokaryotic gyrase. So, lots of different ways. Some inhibit polymerase, 
reverse transcription inhibitors. We don't do reverse transcription, only certain viruses do. These inhibit that process, in particular they're used with HIV. We don't make reverse transcriptase, we don't have any repeats for it, it doesn't do anything to us. Uh, we talk about preventing viral attachment. So, the ideal antimicrobial agent is available easily, it's cheap, it's stable chemically, easily administered, non-toxic, non-allergenic, and it's selectively toxic. It gets a wide range of pathogens. Well, there really aren't many that are that fit all of those characteristics. That's ideally what you're looking for. Some of them are pretty expensive. Uh, some are very expensive. Uh, when we talk about a spectrum of action, you've all heard about broad spectrum uh, uh, antibiotics and narrow spectrum. All that is referring to is how many different organisms is affected. Broad, broad spectrum are used when sometimes they're never used if we know what's causing the infection because you're, you're going to kill a lot of things that you don't need to be messing with. Uh, but if you have no idea what's going on, often they'll start on a broad, broad spectrum um, and, and, and then try to narrow down. And so here is a little bit of a, a little chart here that gives you the spectrum of activity. Uh, so some of these are affected more. You'll notice gram positives get handled pretty well. Mycobacteria, there's only a couple of things that are effective against those. Gram negatives, a few. Over here with the fungi and protozoans, you'll notice there's really not a lot. Helminths have their own unique, or worms have their own unique. It gives you an idea of what, what uh, some of the drugs are and what they're effective against. So erythromycin, tetracycline are fairly broad spectrum. Now, when you are going to prescribe these, uh, you need to know what its effectiveness is. And there's some tests that we do. You did one in lab. And this is called a Kirby-Bauer test. This is exactly what we did in lab. You put the little paper disc on there you, uh, after you swabbed it with uh, bacteria, and you look to see how big the zone of inhibition is. That tells you about how susceptible that particular organism is to that antibiotic. Okay, this is one way of, of testing that. Another way is to follow this. Okay, um, Here, we have increasing concentration of the drug and we've inoculated the, each of these with uh, bacteria. And so you can just look at them and see, okay, at the low uh, concentrations of the drug, we have a lot of growth because the, the food is not clear, it's turbid. And as we get down to about here, it starts to clear. This tells us, all right, right about here is where this is kind of the uh, dosage we would like to get into somebody because we can see that it's effective. The dosage at one of these levels might be more easily tolerated, but it's not going to be very effective. This is another way of determining the appropriate, what's the minimum concentration you have to have in order for it to be effective. Um, and then there's this thing called an e-test. Uh, it combines uh, both of those. Um, you have your lawn, you have the uh, organism, or the uh, antibiotics here, so you get an area, 
but then it also diffuses along this strip. Along this strip, you can see there are numbers. These are differing concentrations. And so of uh, uh, high concentrations, you get a large circle. These lower concentrations, you get a much smaller circle. And it's a way of kind of doing both at the same time, doing both the Kirby-Bauer and the minimum inhibitory concentration. You kind of get a, a, a reading of both of those at the same time. Um, Another way, of course, is that uh, you, you can uh, look at the, uh, you can take samples out of the tubes, put them on plates, and see if you get colonies or don't get colonies. So here we have three different concentrations of your uh, of the clear tubes. I'm going to go back to this. Okay, we had different concentrations. Okay, so here we have three different concentrations. We plate them out, get no colonies here or here. We get colonies here, so somewhere right about here is your what you're going to want to be using to, uh, as a test. So this is called the minimum bactericidal concentration. All right, so how do we give them? Uh, some are topical, external infections. You can put things on the outside that uh, are um, a lot more, uh, a lot stronger. Uh, for instance, the things you would use for antifungals like athlete's foot, you could not take internally, but you can put them on externally and they, they don't cause a big problem. Uh, oral route, obviously, your pills. Intramuscular injection, that's your typical go and get a shot in the arm or, or other places, depending on what they're giving you. Um, and then lastly is intravenous, which is usually only used for really serious cases for hospitalized. And you're giving usually very large doses of antibiotics with that. Now, here is some uh, a look at the concentrations that end up in the blood from oral. See the intramuscular, you get a very quick high spike, and then it gradually, because your kidneys, uh, well, your liver and your kidneys, as soon as that stuff goes in, they're starting to screen it out of the blood and break it down and get rid because it's not a normal thing to be in you. Uh, and of course, if you're doing continuous intravenous, then you can maintain a high concentration. And this would only be done for somebody who's, you know, really needs that and is in a hospital, hospitalized. All right, I guess we'll stop there. We'll finish up. We have only, uh, yeah, only a few more of those, and then we'll start on infectious disease. Plan on an exam a week from Monday. That's the 28th of March. And we will have started uh, by then on a little bit on immunity. The exam on immunity is going to be a take-home exam. Uh, so, because we don't want to have time to do one in class, and I don't think you really want to do one on uh, and then we'll be going through the different organ systems pretty quickly. All right. I'll see you down in the lab in a few minutes.